This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Looking for the most fun you've ever had watching a game show? Well, come on in. We've got five wonderful stars. Vicki Lawrence. Contestants, Brett Wickham and Susan Wright, and the guy that makes it all happen, our host, Michael Berger. What's up? What's up? What's up? All here on Match Game. Match game on Michael Berger. Well, Coolio came out with such an attitude, man. You kind of had that. You got us all in the mood there. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh, look at this. This is the current CD. This is the current CD uh-huh. signed to you or to. Uh... Actually, don't tell Garrett, but I think I'm going to give it to him for a present. Oh, a little present, all right? Yeah. D- Garrett wow. doesn't. You if he watches the show. Garrett doesn't watch the show. Rest in peace, Coolio and Judy Tenuta. This is it. Was a thing on TV. Before I change my mind, I give you Super Train. Episode 313, Submission 319 The Brady Brides. The Brady Brides aired on NBC from February 6, 1981 to April 17, 1981. For ten episodes, the first three of which were later edited into a TV movie as originally intended. Now, normally, we would wait until a little bit later to get into the crux of the plot of the series. But this being a show created by Sherwood Schwartz and his son Lloyd Schwartz, the main bullet points are spelled out with the theme music. So, ladies, please. It's a new life for two girls named Brady who have got the bunch to make it on their own. Jan fell in love with a man named Philip. The nicest guy she knows. In the meantime, along came Wally. He's different than Philip every way. And the girl know the story of a lovely lady and her three very lovely girls. 
And of course, the story of a man named Brady with three boys of his own. And the fact that one day in the late 1960s, they all came together and formed a family. That was, if I'm being completely honest, from a rating standpoint, it was mid. But families loved it. And Paramount gave them five seasons. And then, well, let me take you back a bit. Because when we talked about Star Trek, the animated series, we dwelled on how when Star Trek, the original series, left NBC, they quickly shopped it into syndication. The same deal was made for the Brady Bunch. And something happened. It became a hit. Wow. Yeah, it turned from a modest network TV show into this syndicated must-see television legend. So to shore up a little bit more sales, Sherwood Schwartz and his son Lloyd, well, they decided to reunite the Bradys in a way never seen before on the Donnie and Marie show. After the Donnie and Marie show, the network loved it so much that they decided to give the Brady Bunch their own variety show, and everybody signed on board except for one notable exception. But we're not here to talk about Jerry Reichel. That's another episode. But Sherwin and Lloyd Schwartz never stopped shopping the Bradys around. And in 1980, they arrived at NBC with a pitch to Fred Silverman. Drawing from the popularity of the show in syndication... Sherwood and Lloyd pitched to Fred Silverman another reunion, this time with all of the original cast, except for Robbie Rist, and people who grew up watching the original Brady Bunch would draw in with their kids who have grown up on the syndicated package. So they got the entire bunch back together for literally the mother of all weddings. I mean, this wedding was going to make Mike and Carol's soiree look tame by comparison. All of this is fleshed out in what was to be a TV movie. A run-of-the-mill, regular TV movie. And in the TV movie... Marsha Brady and Jan Brady, of course, played by the lovely and talented Maureen McCormick and Eve Plum, were going to have boyfriends, through one way or another, get married, and find a house that was way out of their budget. Because the 80s. They get the idea to split the cost in fourzies and move in together. And... In true Brady Bunch fashion, hilarity ensues. They showed the original cut of the movie 
to a test audience, and they didn't just like it. They loved it. To the point where Fred Silverman decided to get a jump start on the production of the spinoff and split the movie into three episodes. These would be the first three episodes of the series. The kids are going to love it. It was a good idea. But then they decided to rest a week and get the proper series on television that following week. That's where the wheels came off. But before we get to the why of it all, let's get to the who of it all. Of course, we mentioned Sherwood Schwartz and Lloyd Schwartz. They were the two creators of the show. Uh, Sherwood Schwartz uh, created the original characters and brought his son Lloyd Schwartz into the fold. Want to say midway through the run of the original Brady Bunch. And then there are the castmates. Of course, you know, Marsha and Jan. Marsha played by Maureen McCormick and Jan played by Eve Plum. They would reprise their roles as they did so many years ago, that we would find that Jan was married to Philip, who has been a longtime boyfriend, and they sort of connect on an intellectual and spiritual level. Yeah, he's like a preppy guy, right? He is a professor at a junior college. He is a chemistry professor at a junior okay. college. At a junior college. Okay. Mm-hmm. Junior college. Making that Chemistry Big Bucks in 1981. Yep. And because, hey, it was the 80s, and the 80s needed scientists to do all the sciencing. Philip was played by Ron Coleman, who went on to become a that guy from that thing. But okay, playing Marsha's husband in this show. Playing Marsha's husband in this show, Wally Logan? Jerry Hauser. That's right. Jerry Hauser. Who became a that voice from that thing. That's right. But you know what, guys? This is not going to be the last time this year we're going to be talking about Jerry Hauser. Because guess what? He was in the premiere episode of the McLean Stevenson Show. You know what? It has been too long since we've talked about McLean Stevenson on this show. No, it hasn't. No, no, I agree with Greg. We can hold off a little bit longer. We already know that Jan and Philip have this spiritual, intellectual, romantic relationship. And they're cute together. Wally meets Marsha at lunch because they work in the same building. Wally works at a toy company while Marsha is a fashion designer it's a weird combination yeah it gets weirder so wally meets marcia over lunch marcia talks about the problem she had with jan marrying philip because uh as we talked about in the movie or as we are going to talk about jan is about to get married before her older sister so, Wally has the idea to get married to Marsha. 
Except for one thing. Technically, they just met. And this is way before the age of Love is Blind. Or Joe Millionaire. Or that show with the masks that aired on Fox with Monica Lewinsky. I forget what it was called. Oh, wait, I do vaguely remember this. Oh, Mr. Personality, right? Yeah, that's the one. Oh, God. I literally forgot that existed. Yeah, uh, folks, this is before Fox decided to commodify dating strangers. Hold on a second. It's time once again to play another game of Is It On Tubi? Is it on Tubi? Is it on Tubi? Is it on Tubi? Well, Greg's gonna look it up and see if it was on Tubi. Okay, hold on a second. Mr. Personnel. No, it's not on Tubi. Oh. Not on Tubi. <laughs> Joe Millionaire is on Tubi, and that's not on Tubi. BS. Hey, guys. What? Do we need a name for that segment? Oh, it's Is It On Tubi? Is It On Tubi? No, even simpler than that. Tubi or not Tubi? That is the question. Apparently, it's not Tubi. So, after a week-long fling, let's call it what it is, it was a fling, it got hot and heavy, Marsha and Wally decide... Yeah, you know what? Marriage is not a bad idea. So, they spring the news to Mama and Papa Brady, with uh, Robert Reed and Florence Henderson reprising their roles, of course. Robert Reed looking more and more like Alex Trebek in his early days. Yes, he does. With that, what do you call that? That fro and that That, With that fro and that mustache. Oh, yeah. They're just like, huh. We're really going to do this, right? Yep, we're really going to do this. And in comes Jan like, wait a minute. We can have the weddings at the same day. At the same place. This place. Our house. Everybody's like, sure, fine, whatever. So they get the whole bunch back together. Greg, who is now a resident played by Barry Williams. Peter, who is an officer in the Air Force, played by Chris Knight. Bobby, who is in college, played by Mike Lookinland. And Cindy, who just got dropped off at college, played by Susan Olsen. The whole gang's back together. Oh, yeah. I How can I forget this? How can I forget? She's literally the glue that kept the bunch together low these many years. And Ann B. Davis is Alice. Oh, yeah. Ambie Davis is Alice. She's all up in this, too. And now you know what happened in the movie slash first three episodes. And if that were the story, we wouldn't be here. Well, actually, we would be here, but we'd be talking up a different tack here. But they decided to make a full series out of those three episodes that were edited from the movie that people watched and enjoyed. And they all aired in sweeps. Well, after a week to rest on their laurels, 
the Logans and the Covingtons are back at it, looking for a place to live. They can't live in Marsha's apartment, or Jan's, or Wally's, or Phillip's. And they can't live in the uh, split level. They need their own place. And Marsha was looking for a place for Jan, and Jan was looking for a place for Marsha, and they end up finding a place with each other. What? The four, the four of them. Together. What? In one single house. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, by the way, we're going to get a workout with that clip this episode. Oh, Susan, get ready. This is going to be a chaotic episode for you. Oh, yeah. So, let's talk about the episodes. We already went over, in brief, the first three. Here's episode four. Two couples, one house, in Living Together. Following their double wedding, sisters Jan and Marsha and their new husbands, Philip and Wally, look for places to live and find it's not so easy. The young couples are aided in their search for houses by the girl's mother, Carol Brady, who is now working as a real estate agent. As luck would have it, all four fall in love with the same house. They come up with an unusual way to solve their financial problems and beat the acute housing shortage all at the same time. Gaming the system, baby! Yeah! However, some of their new neighbors don't appreciate their offbeat lifestyle and call the police. And by some, we of course mean one. Ms. Fritzinger. And did we mention that there is a bit of uh, complication involving a whole lot of furniture? No. Because Marsha gets her furniture delivered. Then Jan gets her furniture delivered. Philip gets his furniture delivered. Wally gets his furniture delivered. Then the Covingtons get their furniture delivered. Then the Logans get their furniture delivered. And then the Bradys get their furniture delivered. So next thing you know, it looks like a rooms-to-go outlet for like five or ten minutes in that episode. And after an argument, they basically decide to solve this problem, I Love Lucy style, splitting the house in two. Until here comes Mitz Fritzinger again, wondering what in the world is going on. And by the way, a glass of milk and people drinking naked are involved. Ultimately, Wally sticks up for Philip. Jan sticks up for Marsha. Everybody is one big happy. And Mitz Fritzinger, who is, by the way, equal parts fuss budget and fuddy-duddy, is surprisingly not amused. But this is the life you signed up for. Welcome to the show. By the way, Ms. Fritzinger, you're going to love this. She's played by Barbara Kaysen, who, if you're a big fan of Gary Shandling's It's Gary Shandling Show... She played Gary Shandling's mother, Ruth. Oh. Yeah, we've talked about her in the past. Because not only was she on uh, Gary Shandling's show as Gary's mother, she was also on Carter Country. She played Chloris Phoebus. 
But also, we talked about her in the past uh, on Hello, Larry. Hello, Larry. That's what I was waiting for. Thank you. Uh, you guys talked about her a couple weeks ago, actually. She was in an episode of Half Nelson. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's where we talked about her. Yeah. But also taking a look at her uh, IMDb, we're going to talk about her in early March because she was on an episode of Madam's Place. You're so looking forward to that, aren't you? This one's a winner. I hear Greg's frustration in the background. This, I promise, Greg, promise, is better than You Don't Know Jack and is better than the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show. I know that's not a very high bar, but it's still a bar nonetheless. It's still a bar? It's a very, 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 very low bar, but it's still a bar, yes. Oh, and by the way, we we have two more names in this episode. Playing the two movers that move all of the furniture into the house. One is played by Bert Rosario. We talked about him on AKA Pablo. Among other things. The other is played by Stuart Pinkin. Earl Sinclair on Dinosaurs. Yeah, and not well, also not necessarily the news. Yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah, and also uh, the stuffy old boss in the sequel to the only '80s movie that counts, Mannequin. I only say this because it gives me an excuse to bring up Christy Swanson. Wait, no, she was in Mannequin too. Exactly, he was in the sequel. Oh, Mannequin was in the sequel. Oh God, no. <laughs> Screw that. I don't Screw acknowledge that, in... that exists. As well, you should not. Episode two or five, whichever you're looking at. Gorilla of my dreams. There was another show that had that episode title. Gorilla My Dreams. That was uh, I remember it was uh, the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Was it that? Okay. I think so. I'm on the case. Okay, well, sharing a house isn't easy as the young couples find out. Often their lifestyles clash. Toy salesman Wally enjoys bringing his products home, such as a gigantic gorilla that plagues Philip, an often stodgy academic type. Wally makes friends with Harry, a kid from the other side of the tracks, A robber finds it isn't easy burglarizing the new household, and Jan and Marsha get a lesson in self-defense from their mother, Carol. And it wasn't on Super Mario Brothers Super Show, Chico. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it was Marblehead Manor. Oh, my mistake. Great uh, era, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, and by the way, this is the first of many appearances of young Harry, the streetwise scamp from across the tracks. Because if you're a sitcom in the early 80s on NBC, you know what you're getting? A sassy black kid. Let's replicate that different strokes magic. Only this time, Harry is played by a young man by the name of Cullen's Love, who wasn't really on much between this and the time he decided to uh, retire from the business. I see one role in Hill Street Blues, one role in the A-Team, one role on Friars Place... 
And then he voiced three different characters on three different episodes of Foofer. He was also in three different episodes of CBS Story Break. I only say this because I love CBS Story Break. He's going to be a bit of a troublemaker as the series goes on. Playing the role of Professor Thompson, one of Philip's colleagues, is Byron Morrow. Greg, he played Admiral Comac on several episodes of Star Trek, the original series. Oh, wow. And he played Feral on previous entry, Hall of Fame entry, Super Train. Oh, nice. And in the role of the burglar is Randy Stump, who wasn't much of anything. I mean, he was a that guy from that thing. His most notable work was as Andy in the original cult classic film, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Next episode, The Newlywed Game. Three guesses what game show this involves. Bullseye. I was expecting somebody to say Family Feud. Jan and Marsha and their new husbands, Philip and Wally, wind up as contestants on TV's The Newlywed Game after the host of the show has trouble with his car in front of their house and asks to use their phone. When Bob Eubank suggests the young couples appear as contestants on his show, Marsha, Jan, and Wally become excited about the prospects of winning lots of prizes. Philip, however, takes a dire view of the situation feeling he'll make a fool of himself on national television. Syndicated national television, because this is 1980. But decides to go along with it when he realizes he could win a new aquarium for his guppies. Aww. On the show, Bob Eubanks does what Bob Eubanks does. He asks the wife questions about their husbands while the mates are backstage, then reverses the situation. The answers turn out to be both amusing and embarrassing. And one couple, well, I hope they came up for air. Let's just say that. Because they spend the entire show in the throes of passion, let's just say. They are Wayne Anderson and his wife, Dorothea Anderson. And if I'm not mistaken, Wayne Anderson was an officer in the Air Force who just got back from overseas. Dorothea Anderson was played by Renee Jones, who played Lieutenant Aquiel Onari in a 1993 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And she was also on an episode of Marblehead Manor. More specifically, I led three wives. Jerry was apparently uh, pretending to be married to three women. And her husband... Wayne Anderson was played by Leonard Lightfoot, who would go on to star in season one of Silver Spoons. He was the guy whose character was written out as Franklin Seals's uh, Dexter Steppens was written in. And of course, Johnny Jacobs plays himself, and Bob Eubanks also plays himself. Episode the next one. The Mom Who Came to Dinner. Pandemonium results when Carol Brady temporarily moves in with her newly wedded daughters and their husbands. 
Mama Brady's first night in her daughter's house turns into a harrowing experience for everyone as sleeping arrangements are stretched to the limit. So, here's the situation. Carol volunteers to sleep on a cot in the living room. Jan, because she's Jan, is going to have none of it and volunteers Philip to sleep on the cot while Carol sleeps with Jan. Marcia and Wally are in the other room getting ready to either do it or ignore doing it. When Marcia brings up that if Wally was any sort of husband, he would have volunteered instead of Philip. So he goes and takes the cot in the living room. All of this is happening while Philip is rewiring the house to automatize everything. Talking about temperatures and instant access to medical, fire, and police. Apparently, Willowbrook was not the neighborhood it was when the Bradys were kids. And of course, Harry comes in at two in the morning because he was left alone with his mother and he wanted a place to stay for the night. So he stays with the Logans and the Covingtons and Mama Brady. Carol decides to take the cot. The husbands decide to take one room. And the wives take another room, and Harry sleeps with Philip and Wally. It gets kind of weird until somebody flips on the uh, automation, and the whole house goes haywire, bringing in a police officer, the same one who brought Harry to the house before, firefighters, and two paramedics to cart off Carol Brady in the cot just as she was getting to sleep. Playing the policeman is Donovan Womack who looks like the kind of archetype who would play a policeman but that's only because he played a haunted house butler in Secret Agent 00 Soul with Billy D. Williams but aside from that he hasn't done much. Playing the role of a fireman, though, Joe Estevez. Greg, I believe you know who Joe Estevez is. Yeah, he's the brother of Morton Sheen, obviously. Mm -hmm. Which would make him the uncle of Charlie and Emilio. Yes. And, of course, Joe Estevez was in that classic from the 10th season of Mystery Science Theater 3000, Soul Taker. Nice. Our next bit of insanity, the siege. Wally's failure to pay a back parking ticket spells trouble for him and the rest of the family when the FBI surrounds their house. Uh-oh. 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 Wally panics when a policeman comes to the house to ask him some questions. He decides to impersonate his brother-in-law, Philip Covington III, in order to throw the officer off. Actually, the officer, an FBI agent, has come to discuss government funds Philip is seeking for a project at school. Oh, boy. When family members go along with Wally's hoax, the FBI thinks Philip and his wife are in danger and decide to take action. Oh, jeez. And in the role of 
Inspector Rankin, Joseph Campanella. The Joseph Campanella from One Day at a Time, who played Ed Cooper, a.k.a. Bonnie Franklin's ex-husband, if my memory serves me correctly. And if it doesn't, I'm sure somebody will tell me. And playing the other inspector is Patrick Cronin, who played Dr. Rimlin in Rocky Five. Now, the next episode is actually... Oh, jeez. You look at the... Oh, okay, the next episode is called Cool Hand Phil. It's on YouTube, and if you watch it, you're going to take one look at it and say, Damn these white people. Because, okay, the plot line is this. Philip wants to change his personality after he pulls absolute dead last in a school-wide poll of who the most popular teacher is. A stodgy teacher comes in dead last in a student poll. Who'd have thought? So, Wally volunteers himself to teach him how to be happy-go-lucky, how to be a good friend, how to be a little bit loose. In comes Harry, teaching Philip how to walk. And of course, Philip naturally walks like a Sasquatch. He sees Harry walking, and he does this sort of thing, you know? He does the whole uh, exaggerated arm movements, like, hey, yo, and what's up, and all that stuff, and all of this is happening while Jan is pitching an architect project, because Jan's an architect now. She's pitching an architect project for a summer home for a very rich client, Mrs. Richardson. And all of this comes to a head when her pitch is disrupted by a football. What is with the Bradys and football? 15, 64, 50, 80, 90, hey, hey! Hey, you guys. <gasps> oh, my God! Marcia, sorry. You okay? You hurt. I'm really sorry. Why? I mean, come on. Anywho, this gets into a gigantic argument, and the husbands are not speaking to each other. The wives are not speaking to each other. Alice has to come in and act as mediator to bring Marsha and Jan back together. Meanwhile, Wally and Philip. They don't have Alice, but they do have a bar, and the bar does have a bar fly, a drunkard by the name of Duke the Drunk. He brings his friends over to the house as Marsha and Jan basically redo the whole pitch of their summer home. Did we mention that their friends are all barflies at a local honky-tonk? Because that becomes important because the pitch becomes one gigantic hoedown. Oh, man. My explanation cannot do justice. This has to be seen to be believed. Turns out, Mrs. Richardson loves the idea? What? And in true Brady Bunch fashion... The whole thing is settled in the half hour. Oh god, this show has names. Uh, playing Duke the Drunk. Alan Sues. Yes, that Alan Sues. From 
Lappin, and the Twilight Zone. So, yeah. Playing Mrs. Richardson, a slightly older Gloria Henry. And if that name sounds familiar, she played Alice Mitchell on Dennis the Menace, the original series with Jay North. And the bartender named Sunshine, who's serving Duke the Drunk, is played by Bonnie Ebsen, who, fun fact, is the daughter of Buddy Ebsen. That's what I figured. And the final episode, A Pretty Boy is Like a Melody. Marsha has designed some clothing for her dress business and decides to have a fashion show, but when her professional models go on strike, she cons her husband Wally and her brother-in-law Philip into modeling. It all culminates in a sort of scene where Philip and Wally are getting into a fight backstage and Philip's like, I'm not going out there dressed like that. And Wally's like, of course not. You're going out dressed like this. Removes the robe, pushes him on stage. And of course, Philip being Philip, he's looking for something to cover himself with. And uh, hilarity ensues. What can we say? But we have a big name in this episode. Playing himself is a man by the name of Richard Selzer. That name does not sound notable, does it? What if I told you that he spent his entire career by another name? Mr. Blackwell. Oh, God. Yep. That guy. Talk about somebody even more terrible than Yuri Geller. (laughs) That was his one thing every year. I know. I I get it. I get it. Like, what did he do? Nothing. Pretty much. Yeah, you're not wrong. And that was pretty much the show. It was basically the Brady Bunch meets the odd couple with a sassy black friend a la Different Strokes. And it aired on Fridays. And now, if you've seen the 13-week theater episode, they make a really good point. Pabs and Jenis makes a really good point about people tuning out when the show went to series as opposed to the movie split into thirds because it was sort of like a different show. It didn't fit into the Brady Bunch mold. It was basically its own animal, and people tuned in for Marsha and Jan and the rest of the Bradys. Philip and Wally were basically an afterthought, and they were basically trying desperately to shoehorn the entire family with Philip and Wally into the whole premise. And that is a perfectly valid way of seeing things. But I'm not the kind of person who will take a take from a respected YouTuber and call it a day. I'm looking at the schedule right now. Do you know what the Brady Brides was up with and what it was up against? No. What was it? Okay, so it led out of Harper Valley PTA, and in that hour on ABC was Benson and I'm a Big Girl Now, and on CBS, The Incredible Hulk. Oh yeah, that'll do it. 
on the strength of the movie split into three different episodes, it probably would have stood a chance somewhere else. Anywhere else. But they kept the time slot, and the Brady Brides kept getting beaten by the Incredible Hulk. Not so much I'm a big girl now. I imagine that I'm a big girl now, and the Brady Brides were fighting over what was left of the audience cast aside by the Incredible Hulk. At the end of April, NBC decided, you know... I think we're happy with the 10 episodes that aired. I think we're good. We're just going to go ahead and call it. But that wasn't the only thing that ended because two months later, and I screen capped the announcement because this was Fred Silverman's last best hope for a hit on NBC, any hit on NBC. But remember, he still had a different strokes in the facts of life, right? But he wanted something, you know, to build upon that. Well, this from uh, the Washington Post and Tom Shales. One of the first things incoming RCA Chairman Thornton Bradshaw will do when he takes office will be to announce Fred Silverman's successor. Silverman will be leaving 18 months before his contract expires in December 1982. The contract is said to call for a salary of $1 million a year. The terms of the settlement are not known. The NBC television network showed a profit of only $10 million last year, down from $125 million in 1977, the year before Silverman arrived. Silverman, who had a reputation as a programming wizard, was lured to NBC three years ago to pull the network from third to first in the primetime ratings. Today, however, NBC is as deeply mired in third place as ever. Silverman left for a Hawaiian vacation on June 11th. He's not expected back until July 6th. However, says one source, Silverman's gone. He'll never come back as NBC president. Of course, the network denied it at the time, but the writing was on the wall. And Grant Tinker and later Brandon Tartikoff stepped up to the plate and the rest is TV history. But I'm looking at the shows because all of the episodes were actually released on DVD as part of a 2019 full episode package. Which included... All of the Brady Bunch, all of the movies, all of the Brady Brides, all of the Bradys, all of the Brady Kids, the three 90s releases, including Made for Video, The Brady Bunch Goes to Washington, with Blue Turbo Ranger Blake Foster as Peter. Oh, he was in that? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That is actually part of... Of the package, so you can get all of the episodes six, seven, three, ten, however many episodes of this show there are. You can get all of them, plus the edited down version of the movie on that box set. Or if you can't be bothered with things like spending money, you can stream almost the entire series right now for free on YouTube unofficially. So, thoughts, gentlemen? Yeah, I think. 
the Brady Brides, uh, it's fine as a TV movie, but as a regular series, do you really want to watch it? No. Yeah, I mean, I looked at some of the episodes. It wasn't bad. I no, mean, it wasn't that terrible. Yeah, uh, Marsha was good. Jan was good. Philip was good. The writing was good. Wally was good. The whole production seems like it was a good fit for television. And if it was any other show not named The Brady Bunch, it probably would have stood a chance. I'm looking at Wally and Phillips' dynamic, and you know what I see? Leonard Hofstetter and Sheldon Cooper. Yeah, I can see that. Everybody had chemistry. Everybody played off each other so well. It almost felt... It didn't feel as stilted as it was. Although, let's be honest, it was a sitcom in the early 80s. It was pretty darn hokey. But it wasn't forced. I mean, it wasn't the Brady Bunch, but it wasn't a bad TV show. If it was scheduled for another time somewhere else instead of, hey, let's put it on Fridays where the Brady Bunch was. Yeah, you needed to think a little bit outside the box on that. Just a little bit. But this wouldn't be the last that we heard of Marsha or Jan or Wally or Philip or Alice or Carol. But that is another thing on TV for oh, another time. Yeah. Ah. What else is there to say? The Brady Bunch, legendary television. The Brady Brides, it was just a thing on TV. Wow! I certainly am not overreacting. What the devil do you think happened to Bobby when they added Cousin Oliver to the Brady Bunch? Oliver, did you break this vase? No, the floor did. Oh, <laughs> so cute. Hey, everybody, I... Bobby, you get back in the garage! No! We are going to bring you our second episode of The Drop, but before we do, we should note there is a change to the format of the show that you may notice if you regularly listen to our drops that Mike will note. The classic commercial break will now be in the middle of each episode, starting with the upcoming 314. So do not be alarmed in advance. Now join us as we discuss Beyond Westworld. Chico, take it away. Episode 314, submission number 570. Beyond Westworld. Beyond Westworld aired on CBS from March 5th to March 19th, 1980, for five episodes, two of which went unaired. It began with Westworld. Three, two, one, activate now. A futuristic playground where people could act out their fantasies with robots so sophisticated it was impossible to tell them from humans. Your move. Suddenly, the robots changed, turned into the deadly servants of their creator, Simon Quaid, who took them beyond Westworld. I have an impregnable army of loyal and unquestioning troops. I've placed robots all over the world. He wants it all. 
There's one heck of a good chance of getting it with those robots. Delos, builders of Westworld, must stop Quaid. Assigned is Security Chief John Moore and Special Agent Pam Williams. Let's face it, John, it's your wits against Quaid's machines. In 1973, Michael Crichton, a young writer, directed his first ever screenplay. It was about artificial beings in a futuristic theme park run amok. And as you can probably tell, it was not Jurassic Park. That would be 20 years later. This was the story of Westworld. And in order to understand the story of Beyond Westworld, we have to briefly go over what Westworld was about. Westworld was a cult classic science fiction film that featured Richard Benjamin and James Brolin as guests at a theme park manned by what we would now call, here in 2022, hosts. Artificially intelligent robots that look act, feel, taste, touch, and behave like humans. And Westworld was one of three destinations for the Dallas Corporation. The other two, of course, being Roman World, sort of a pre-Columbian, pre-Christian Roman Empire deal, and Medieval World, a land of Arthurian legend of Wizards, warriors, knights, and um, maidens in distress, let's say? For a hefty fee, you could go to any one of the three worlds and basically live out whatever your fantasy is. Whether it's killing somebody or sleeping with somebody. And apparently, people really wanted to do this because... The Delos Corporation made a pretty penny until one fateful day when it all went to sh**. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, one of the highlights of the Westworld experience is the gunfighter, or the gunslinger in some versions, played by Yul Brynner, who was doing a send-up of his character in The Magnificent Seven. He starts by killing Jimmy Brolin. Oh, no, not James Brolin. Yeah, he's not supposed It's like, I've been shot. Wait a minute, that's not supposed to happen. And then he falls over dead. Well, if he kills James Brolin, how is Josh Brolin going to be in Deadpool 3? I don't know. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. That's another show. Sorry. So this kicks off a battle of wits between Richard Benjamin's character and Yul Brynner's character. And to put a long story short, Richard Benjamin uses his brains and his wits to outsmart the gunslinger's base programming, leaving him the only person alive in Westworld. 
Fast forward a couple of years later, Westworld is leveled and replaced with a sequel, Future World. This is all in a sequel movie entitled Future World. Where people from all over the world are invited to come experience Future World and all of the improvements made upon the hosts only to discover that they're currently being shopped out and replaced with hosts. All the people who visit Future World are being shopped out and replaced with lookalike hosts. That's a really good movie if you want to take a look at it. We're not going to go over it here. Now, when you think about Westworld and you think about television, the 2016 HBO series comes to mind, right? Yes. It's been in development forever. I remember a couple of years where I was reading up on it and thinking, is this TV show ever going to come out? And if it does, is it going to be any good? Well, they got the likes of Evan Rachel Wood, James Marsden, Jeffrey Wright, Tendiway Newton, Tessa Thompson, and of course, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Of course it was good. Season 4 notwithstanding. I mean, season 1 was incredible. Season 2 was amazing. Season 3 was... Okay? Season 4, it went completely off the rails. I'm fully expected that uh, HBO is going to renew it for a fifth and final. Well, I've never seen Westworld, so I wouldn't know. So It's a really good show. That's what I hear. Yeah. Just, you know, you don't have to watch season four. In fact, I would uh, advise against it. But that's not the show we're here to talk about. The show we're here to talk about was a 1980 entry on CBS. It was developed by Lou Shaw, and it got to the heart of what went wrong in the original Westworld. It's like, okay... All of the robots are turning against humans. All of the hosts are turning against the guests. But why? Now, it could be a virus. It could be just a malfunction. But what if there was a more sinister explanation? It was an inside job, so to speak. That's not possible. Those people were carefully screened. It wasn't the people. What do you mean? It was the robots. Where's Professor Oppenheimer? He'll meet us at Westworld. Just how much do you know about Westworld? I set up security there before it opened, that's all. The professor's asked me to brief you. <sighs> Westworld shut down each night at 2 a.m. The robots were left where they were deactivated. At dawn, the computer room went back into operation. Westworld will activate in 30 seconds. That day started like any other with all the usual procedures. 20 seconds. Those were some of the most highly trained experts in the world. What do you mean, were? You'll see. 15 seconds. All right, thank you. What was that? No grounding unit five? Yeah. Try and bypass. I am reading at all units. Five included. 10 seconds to activation. You ready on phase four, four, three? 
And then it started. The computer control room was destroyed. So you couldn't turn the robots off? No. They can go on their own power on, on a stored charge for up to 12 hours. Suddenly, they just stopped following our instructions. Or started following someone else's. No idea who it might have been? Him. Professor Oppenheimer's assistant, Simon Quaid. Mr. Quaid, I've intercepted the new beam off the Navy's ocean surveillance satellite. I'll be right with you. That's good. Mark it. USS Ramora, right on schedule. If the Navy changes channels again, find it as quickly as you can. I must keep our radio frequency open to the robot aboard. So that is the basic crux of the Westworld story and how it relates to Beyond Westworld. Security Chief John Moore is dispatched to find all of the robots that Simon Quaid, who is basically playing Dr. Wiley at this point to Dr. Oppenheimer's Dr. Light, Mega Man reference, in moving all of the robots that he created beyond the Delos Parks into our world, and while we're at it, total domination and all-consuming power over every living thing on the planet. So yeah, Simon Quaid, he's a bad man. He's no good. He's a very bad man. No, he's no good. He's a jabroni. He's a jabroni. He no respect the legend, Bubba. So John Moore... And his partner are dispatched all over the world wherever Simon Quaid may show up to activate one of the hosts who is hiding in plain sight beyond Westworld. Now, in order to fully understand and fully enjoy this TV show, you have to do just one thing. Forget that Future World was ever made. Good. Okay. All right, let's talk about who was in Beyond Westworld. Playing the role of Security Chief John Moore was Jim McMullen. Jim McMullen, known primarily as a that guy from that thing, he played General Morgan Fenimore on a 1992 scene of Santa Barbara played Senator Andrew Dowling on 14 episodes of Dallas during the 1986 season, but was mostly known as Dr. 
Dr. Terry McDaniel on the classic Ben Casey. He's one of those people who has played anything and everything. Sadly, died in 2019. Oh, so it's a recent passing. Yes. Playing his nemesis, Dr. Simon Quaid, the creator of the hosts, and the person responsible for bringing all of the hosts beyond Westworld, is James Wainwright. Another that guy from that thing. But he was in a whole lot of really big stuff during the 1970s and the 1980s. It's hard for me to pin down one single role that he's known for. So this would probably end up being it. Although he did play uh, Cully in nine episodes of Daniel Boone, which is perhaps the most known and the longest of his career. Now, in the pilot episode, the pilot and the lady that you just heard in that clip was an assistant agent, Laura Garvey. She's an agent of the uh, Delos Corporation. She was played by Judith Chapman. Judith Chapman was a veteran of all my stories. She was in uh, Ryan's Hope, General Hospital, Silk Stockings. Oh, hi, Silk Stockings. She played six different characters on six different episodes of Silk Stockings. Six different characters on six different episodes of Silk Stockings. Wow. But mostly, you can see her right now as Gloria Baldwin Fisher Abbott Bardwell on The Young and the Restless. Oh, that's terrific. The Young and the Restless. That is the show on CBS that you watch in the daytime that isn't Let's Make a Deal or The Price is Right. Yeah, pretty much. That theme song, though. That theme song is classic. And rounding out the cast is Joseph Oppenheimer, who was the main driving force behind the Delos Corporation and the hosts of Westworld, played by William Jordan, who you might remember as Mr. Borg in Kingpin. Oh, Kingpin. What a classic movie that is. Indeed. Uh, Woody Harrelson is just absolute gold in that movie. And Bill Murray. Don't forget Bill Murray as the heel in that movie. The the second best bowling-themed movie ever. What's the first? The Dude Abides. Come on, get with the program. Oh, Big Lebowski. Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously. Obviously. Now, uh, Judith Chapman and Laura Garvey were only in the one episode. Because her character was written out and replaced with Pamela Williams, played by Connie Selica. And if you don't know who Connie Selica is, what podcast are you listening to? We're talking about uh, previous entry, Flying High, but mostly as another Pam, Pam Davidson, on The Greatest American Hero. Also married some guy named John Tesh. Who's he? I heard he composed, like, some theme about a rock. A round ball rock? Something like that. The rest of the show plays out as a sort of plot of the week slash robot of the week. Discover a robot missing. 
find out where the robot is, try and figure out who the robot is, disable the robot, try and catch Quaid while you're at it. That's basically the summary of all five episodes. So that leaves the question, how do you search for a man who's a machine when the machine looks like a man? Well, let's figure that one out, shall we? Now, again, there were only five episodes in the entire series, with two of them having finished before the show was canceled. First episode, Westworld Destroyed. John Moore is assigned to hunt down Simon Quaid, who has some androids that he proposes to use to further his own ends. The first one is hiding amongst the crew of a U.S. nuclear submarine, presumably with warheads aimed toward Delos. I mean, we've all dreamed of blasting our employers into smithereens, he has the means and the technology to do so. We should all be scared. Now, inheriting the role of the gunslinger from Yul Brynner is Alex Kubik. Now, if you see the end of Westworld, you can understand why the gunslinger was rebuilt. I'll give you a hint. Richard Benjamin burned his face off. Oh, okay. He burned his face off. Yeah. And Alex Kubik was in pretty much everything during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He, too, was in an episode of Sulk Stalkings. Oh, that's great. What season of Sulk Stalkings? Uh, what season in 1993? I want to say it was season it was one. The first season. No, it was season three. It was season three. Wait, 93 would have been the first season. No, it was, se- it was season three, episode five. 1993 may have been the first season on USA, but remember, it was on CBS for two seasons late night. Uh, One notable, actually two notable names in this episode, playing the role of a sailor in one of his earliest roles, Nicholas Guest. Nick Guest. And uh, Greg, you and I have talked about Nick Guest before. We did? He was a cadet. On Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was one of the cadets in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But he would be most notable as um, the headmaster of the American Academy in France on the uh, cable series USA High. It was basically Saved by the Bell if it was on the USA Network. And terrible. And terrible. Yeah, pretty much. And isn't he uh, related to Christopher Guest? He's the younger brother of Christopher Guest. Okay. Oh, Oh, okay. He's the younger brother of Christopher Guest. Yep. And fun fact, uh, both Chris Guest and Nick Guest are the offspring of an American citizen and an English lord. Peter Hayden Guest, the fourth Baron of Salling in Essex, an actor and dancer who ended up as a UN diplomat. Oh, neat! And the second recognizable face as a dance hall girl, Cassandra Peterson. 
Elvira. Elvira. Oh, that's great. Elvira. Hey there, it's Mike. We're going to try something new starting with this episode. We're going to take a little commercial break. Now, we're not selling out to anybody. We're not advertising uh, anything like uh, uh, Nugenics or any sort of man pills or, or fancy underwear or anything like that. You'll enjoy these. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a few minutes. After these messages, we'll be right back. Will you be the one to witness the birth of the incredible Nintendo Entertainment System? The one to play with Rob, the extraordinary video robot, batteries not included. He helps you tackle even the toughest challenge. Will you be the first to raise the incredibly accurate Zapper and play games like Duck Hunt or action-packed Hogan's Alley and high-flying Kung Fu, each sold separately? Will you be the one to experience the Nintendo Entertainment System? Comes with Rob, Zapper, Control Deck, Two Controllers, Gyromite, and Duck Hunt. An evening of firsts on TGIF. Will you go to the dance with me? No. It's Urkel's first homecoming dance on Family Matters. Then, Frank needs some first aid. Step by step. Help me. Then, it's baby's first dirty word. No! <laughs> what do you call me? Dinosaurs. And it's Dorfman's first job. I want you to have these. These are for the patient in room 301. Guy's in a coma. Live a little. Camp Wilder. It's an evening of firsts on TGIF. TGIF. And now back to the show. Chico, episode two, please. Episode two. My brother's keeper. In order to further his criminal activities, Quaid blackmails a large oil company. Moore and Williams search for the android posing as a company employee in order to defeat Quaid's scheme. But you think that was bad? It gets worse. Oh, it gets worse? Yeah. Quaid manages to create a host that looks exactly like Pamela. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And she has eyes on putting John Moore down for good. Uh, playing one of the uh, executives in this episode, a Charles Vincent, is Jack Carter. Legend Jack Carter. Oh, yeah, who we just talked about in the Beyond Belief live show, the last one we did a while back at the time we're taping this, because he played Terry Funk's manager in that episode, where Terry Funk basically beat the guy who played Jesse Ventura in the Jesse Ventura story to death. Yeah, uh, the big story here is Quaid plans to get control of an oil company by using the brother of the owner who's a degenerate gambler. 
Crane bought his debts and tells the man that his debts will be settled if he signs over a majority interest in the company. But he knows the only way that'll happen if it's his brother takes him back, which he won't do, or if his brother dies. John, upon learning of this, tells the owner who refuses to let this alter his plans, specifically when his football team has a big game coming up. So John tries to protect him by trying to find Wade's robot. Another name in this episode, Bobby Van, playing a role as Danny. Oh, wow, Bobby Van. Yeah, we talked about it many times on this podcast. Of course, he was the husband of Elaine Joyce. And the Stoner brothers are played by, uh, one was played by Christopher Connolly, who is sadly no longer with us, but he played Henry in the original Benji movie. And Dean Stoner, the one who actually runs the company, is played by Jeff Cooper, who basically spent 19 early episodes as Dr. Simon Elby in Dallas. He was also on an episode of previous entry, The Powers of Matthew Starr. Episode 3, The Sound of Terror. In order to construct an atomic weapon... Quaid steals uranium from a nuclear power plant. Meanwhile, Moore and Williams attempt to identify the rock band member who is actually an android. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. By the way, uh, one of the members of the rock band, a guy by the name of Power, played by a guy by the name of René Aubergeon-Noir. Oh, yes. Man of many talents. Clayton Endicott the third from Benson. Yeah. Or a changeling by the name of Odo. By the way, the band is called Power and Ruth. What kind of a name is that? It's the 80s. They were naming bands after flocks of seagulls. Who wireless? Who wireless? Another member of the band, guy by the name of Mace was played by Dirk Blocker, a.k.a. Hitchcock from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and son of Dan Blocker from Bonanza. That's right. Put some respect on that name. Dan Blocker. Now, uh, according to uh, IMDb, there was a notable mistake in this episode. It stated that the robot stealing the uranium would have died if it were human. It would have been highly radioactive afterwards for years. The entire band would have also died from radiation poisoning very quickly. It would have been obvious who the robot was. These facts are ignored and glossed over. Now, if I was an agent looking for a robot trying not to uh, endanger any humans, I would want to know that sort of thing. But hey, anything to add to the supposed fantasy of this world. Remember, this is a world where robots walk among us and nobody knows who is who. So you know what? I'm not even going to question it. And also in this episode, oh my gosh, Otis Day! Otis Day? Otis Day! You know, from Animal House? Yeah, Animal House, yeah. Shout now. Come up and shout now. 
And by the way, the Ruth in Power and Ruth, Ronnie Blakely, who played Barbara Jean in the 1975 Robert Altman film Nashville, also played Marge Thompson in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. And those were the three episodes that actually aired. They had five in the can, but after the third episode, we're going to look at the schedule in a bit, but after the third episode, CBS was like, nope. 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 I imagine the ratings were terrible, and the reviews were even worse. So CBS pulled the remaining order, and we had to wait until the entire series was released on DVD. Or, if you're living overseas, you got the other two episodes. Because, hey, might as well air them. Not make it anymore, right? Pretty much. So here is episode four, The Lion. The Dallas team discovers Westworld electronics in the debris left after an experimental car is destroyed. More must discover if the explosion is part of Quaid's latest scheme. Among the many guest stars in this episode, Patrick, played by Russell Johnson. He was uh, lost on an island on CBS before. So I heard. Episode 5, Takeover. Moore and his team discover that one of Quaid's androids is posing as a police officer in the governor's security detail. The governor, Eric Harper, is played by Robert Alda, who we all remember, once again, from Super Train. Why is it always coming back to Super Train? It's that era. It always comes back to Super Train. Okay. And a lot of no names in this episode. Uh, playing Liz Nicholson is Julie Summers before Matlock. Playing Mike Nicholson, who is the captain of police, is Monty Markham. He was in The Six Million Dollar Man and Baywatch, among other things. And playing the role of Jack Edwards, who I imagine, with his physique, could have very well have been the android of the week. Martin Cove. Oh yeah, Martin Cove. Biggest heel on Netflix today. Oh, you're telling me. Sensei John Kreese. No mercy. Strike first, strike fast, no mercy. Quaid is making his next move, and he begins by sending one of his robots to attack a police captain. This catches John's attention. He thinks Quaid has a robot planted in the department, so he goes in as a transfer. But some of the other cops don't exactly welcome him with open arms because he's taking the spot of a cop who is unjustly suspended. And just so happens, the governor is going to make a visit, and the police will be providing security. So that could be Quaid's target. What Moore doesn't know that Quaid has also implanted a device in the captain's brain to control him. All a little bit hard to believe, but then again, that's the story. I mean, we have John Moore, who is a security agent, who is basically able to slip into any role that the situation provides itself, and his partner, Pam Williams, 
who could do the same thing. But this being the late 70s, early 80s, and by the way, it looks like it was the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, this show was released in 1980, right? It looks like it was produced a whole lot earlier, if you follow. It looks like it was produced 10 years earlier from that three-minute clip you showed. Yeah, you should watch the entire series. It's really something. Now, not to take away from any of the successes, because the show was nominated for two Primetime Emmy Awards in uh, Makeup and Art Direction. That's got to count for something, right? Yeah. But yeah, the show was basically formulaic. The acting, ironically, was more robotic than the robots. And that's saying a lot. It really is. I can understand why it died a very quick death. Because it's time to look at the schedule. Now, on March 5th, when it premiered, it was a Wednesday. It was up against real people. Oh, yeah. No, you're not being real people. Yep, they were hoping to uh, get a little bit of mileage out of that. They kept it on for another two weeks. But then they decided to just cut their losses. And I'm not really sure what was put on in its place. I want to say it was just like a series of reruns of other shows. Oh, by the way, there is a couple of uh, recurring characters we forgot to mention. Playing the role of Foley, one of Quaid's assistants, is Severn Darden, who is known primarily as a founding member of Second City Chicago. Oh, okay. He played Culp, the human leader in the uh, fourth and fifth Planet of the Eights films. The ones we don't talk about. And he also played in the episode of Fairy Tale Theater, The Princess Who Had Never Laughed. As Anne McCurry was played by Nancy Harewood. Although she's credited as Anne McCurry. Not known for much aside from this. Although she did play Lieutenant Nara in a 1994 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And doing the research for this episode, I found where there was an episode that featured George Takei. And I'm thinking to myself, I couldn't find him in any of the episodes, in any of the research that was available to us. So, who the heck knows? I can go ahead and tell you, though, that uh, sometime... In the mid-2000s, in 2014, when just around the time that HBO decided, you know what we need? A Westworld reboot. In July 29th, 2014, Warner Home Video released the complete season on its manufacturer-on-demand Warner premiere service. Of course, uh, back then it would be called Warner Archive. But if you can't be bothered by handling cumbersome media, like uh, that lady from the 40th anniversary of the CD show last week, yeah, I'm still going to beat that 
to a pulp here. You can watch all five episodes streaming on the streaming service of your choice, be it Prime Video, YouTube TV, Google Play, or iTunes. Uh, all five episodes run at about $13. And that's pretty much it. I mean, Beyond Westworld is the long-lost, forgotten sort of stepchild of a cult classic movie. And they would take sort of bits and pieces of that, mix it with the movie itself, and get the 2016 series, which you know, continues to enjoy success today. But nothing's really known about it. I mean, what can you say about it? You're taking a bunch of killer robots, you're giving them a boss, you're putting them out in the world, and you're daring two daring agents to say, here we are, come and get me if you can. I mean, you can't even try and pinned down a premise because it was basically as formulaic as the cop shows were in that day. Anything to add? The HBO series is definitely better. Yeah. What can we say? The movie was really good. It was a masterclass in storytelling. It didn't really go into the specifics of the androids until it absolutely had to. Same with the 2016 TV series, which left the 1980 series with a whole lot of holes to flush out. Like, what caused the androids to run amok in the first place? Oh, this guy. He felt underappreciated under the thumb of his boss of a giant corporation and wanted to take over the world using his army of robots. Who, by the way, run on the same technology as a VHS cassette, according to IGN. And by the way, IGN also has a few more details about the last two episodes that were never released stateside. The lion, Quaid, tries to sabotage a futuristic car that would make the oil industry obsolete. He was trying to take over the oil industry, and now he's trying to take over a car that would defeat the oil industry. And in TakeOver, he tries a new trick. A computer chip surgically implanted inside a police commissioner's brain. Ah, here we go. By George Takei, of all people. That will control his mind. After John Moore saves the day, Quaid literally vows never to use that chip again, because he likes robots better. But yeah, Beyond Westworld is a TV show that basically takes all of the themes through the original movie and the current TV series, paranoia, fear, acting out, what happens when fantasy becomes reality, and the future of human behavior as we know it, and it basically trades it in for a bad guy of the week formula. But watching it now, especially given what we know about the franchise as a whole, I'm convinced the only reason that people will remember this show is because of the title. Yeah, that's pretty much the reason anyone will remember it, because of the current show and everything. Not not just the name of the current show, but again, remember who created it. Michael Crichton. What has Michael Crichton created? 
where should we start? Jurassic Park, ER, go from there. It's just another title in Michael Crichton's legacy. Maybe not yeah. the best title, but a title. Yeah, I'm just thinking to myself, Jurassic Park was basically Westworld with dinosaurs instead of androids. You replace a uh, gunslinger with a raptor or a buxom saloon babe with a baby triceratops, and you're basically telling the same story. But this show basically whittles it down to brass tacks and doesn't really expand or enhance upon anything. And we never really understood, okay, Westworld's destroyed. The robots are on the loose. They're being controlled by one guy. We're going to find the guy. Nobody ever talks about what they're going to do once they find him. And if I'm not mistaken, John Moore and Simon Quaid did meet face-to-face one time. I mean... John Moore could have killed him down. But then again, if he killed him, how would he find all the robots? So I guess that makes sense that I think about it. Special agents come in to clean up a corporation's big mess. And all because a guy has a really big inferiority complex. In 2016, Westworld was revolutionary in storytelling, special effects, and everything else that can be uh, described. But in 1980, Beyond Westworld, boy, it was a thing on TV. Thoughts, guys? Yeah, I don't think I have any thoughts. I think you just said everything that needs to be said about that, so... I think maybe it may have been a little ahead of its time, possibly. Maybe. I don't know. At the same time, you did have uh, other sci-fi shows uh, in that era talking about like Battlestar Galactica. And we've talked about Jason of Star Command, even though that was a Saturday morning TV show. I saw the clip that you uh, played earlier, and it does look like something that... Yeah, while it might be like somewhat stereotypically 70s-ish, it's something that could maybe air a few years later in the 80s, 84, 85-ish. Yeah, I mean, I imagine if they gave this a little more time to uh, marinate, they could come up with something that looks and feels almost true to the original series. As it is, it's basically, uh, hey, look, here's a guy operating out of a room in a bunker somewhere with his army of robots. Yes, the room where it happens, the room where Quaid monitors all of his robots are staffed by hosts. Apparently, Quaid can't trust anyone anymore. Well, we don't have an army of robots, and we can't promise you a vacation that you'll never forget, for all the right reasons, anyway. We can't promise that you'll have 400 really good to fair to middling to downright poor episodes 
on our website. It was a thing on TV.com. We have all the uh, previous entries, the mini-sodes, the live watches, and, of course, links to all of our social media at It Was a Thing on TV, except for Facebook, which was taken over by Simon Quaid briefly. So we're left with It Was a Thing on TV podcast. And, of course, we are also on YouTube. Just remember, like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell to stay up to date on all of our future entries. Greg and I are going to talk about something that's going on later this week. Yeah, because apparently an era started, and we didn't even know this was an era. I didn't know it was an era. No. Mike, did you know this was an era? I did not know this was an era. No. Yeah, well, um, there is a movie on Netflix that spawned a series of movies on Netflix. And the original movie was based off of a YA novel. I took one look at that movie, and all I could say is, man, they'll make a movie out of anything. Yeah, they'll make a movie, as I've said many times, they'll make a movie out of any YA book. They'll make anything out of a YA book. Yeah. This film got two sequels. Death Note did not get any. That's crap. But at least Vampire Academy got a Peacock series. True. Before we talk about next week's shows, we should mention this episode will be coming out on the Place to Be Nation on Wednesday, October 19th. So... That is the date when we are going to be starting our election day poll for what we'll be covering in early November. And we all have our entries, right? Yes. So we got three nominees. We're going to post it on the Facebook page. I'm going to create a poll. So everyone's going to vote on it. It's not going to be a direct Facebook poll. So it's going to be different this time. It's going to be an actual poll on a website. There's going to be three nominees. Voting is going to be open on October 19th, and it's going to close on October 26th, right before we do the taping for that episode. So, there are three nominees. So, Mike, what is your nominee? My nominee is Fish. Fish. That's right, Fish. Who doesn't love Fish? Oh, that's an excellent choice. Chico, what's your choice? My nominee is a new take on an old idea. The New Monkeys. There was a New Monkeys? There was a New Monkeys. Oh, yeah, there was a New Monkeys. It was horrible. It was terrible. It was released around the time of the new Gong Show, so. Oh, that explains it. And, of course, my pick is the 1991 CBS Farrah Fawcett Ryan O'Neill show, Good Sports. Because we needed an excuse to talk about Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neal. But do we really? No, no, we don't. No. Those are the three, and now it's all on you. We're going to put up the poll October 19th, leave it up for a week, and whatever gets the most votes, we're going to talk about in, in November. So, be voting, all right? Next week, we're going to start our Halloween-themed episodes for this year. But before that, we're going to talk about something. Well, there's a little hint in this episode. 
I'm sure you can find it. Until then, enjoy the rest of your week. We'll see you on Monday with that new episode right here on It Was a Thing on TV. Thanks for listening. Greg, give us a roar. Say something, boy. I said you talk too much. Why don't you make me shut up? <laughs>